For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour, your weekly podcast covering retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And I'm Ravi Abbott. Now this week on the show, like every week, we bring you a very interesting guest and this week, the dark side of computing. Yes, we have Galahad from Fairlight. Now, you may know about the wear scene and the cracking scene. Fairlight were probably the biggest crime syndicate cracking group <laughs> in the world. So we're going to say a disclaimer here at the Retro Hour, which is we don't condone piracy. You know, people work hard for these games, but with every format, piracy has existed. So from the days of the printing press to the floppy disk, they've had it. And we think this history must not be forgotten. You know, this reproduction has led to innovation and creation. So we're going to explore it. We don't condone it, but <laughs> we're going to talk about it because we don't want to forget. That's a disclaimer out the way. Yep. Now, uh, yeah, Galahad, though, is part of, I mean, you know, anyone that did kind of copying in the playground back in the old days. You'll have seen the Fairlight logo flashing up before a lot of old Amiga games and LSD he was part of, you know, Grapevine, Dismag, I used to love reading that. Yeah, even the top torrent sites now still have Fairlight yeah. releases. On them. Well, I think it's, you know, like you said, it's important to remember this because we've had the developers on, you know, we've had the guys behind the games, but it's important to kind of get the other side of that as well, I think. So, yeah. Galahad is going to be on the show in around 40 minutes from now. And uh, you can get the podcast in even more places now then, Ravi. Oh, yes. Yeah. So now we're on Stitcher. Now, if you don't know about Stitcher, this is supposed to be the second biggest format to iTunes, which uh, BBC Radio <laughs> 4 even did a massive feature on how oh, we should all use Stitcher. So, Pretty slick, uh, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's pretty nice. So we're on Stitcher and TuneIn as well. And you can get the show every Friday, also on iTunes, where we are still new and noteworthy, I've seen this week. so oh, yes, still thank, rocking it. <laughs> thank you to the guys at iTunes. If you do listen on there, uh, please do leave a review. That always helps. And that uh, you can download the show every Friday from our website direct at theretrohour.com. Right, a few stories to get into this week then. This is quite interesting. Radio 1 Fight Games King of the Thrill. What's this about then, Ravi? Okay, I don't know if you've seen this on iPlayer. Radio 1 are basically doing their gaming show, monthly gaming show now. We mentioned this, didn't we, yes. a few months ago? Now they've started doing iPlayer kind of 20-minute episodes talking about gaming. And this one was the thrill of the kill, which was the history of gaming. It was aimed at a younger audience like, you know, Radio 1 is, mm -hmm. but it was all based on Street Fighter. Literally, it could have been an advert for Street Fighter. It's like there was mentions of Mortal Kombat and other stuff, but still good to see mainstream media kind of having a look at this so that's fight games the king of the thrill check that on the bbc iplayer at the moment i think it'll be up for a couple of weeks is it video or audio this uh? it's video this oh, one okay. is yeah and they interview all the kind of radio one presenters mm -hmm. and most of them go oh i love street fighter it's wicked douse him <laughs> you know it's well, like... good timing because street fighter 5's just come out hasn't it yeah the then they, they go up to street fighter 5 but yeah. they also go to like a retro pub and talk to a guy who's got all these kind of old ones and kind of talks briefly about the history of fighting games. You know what, though? I was reading about Street Fighter V. I haven't played it yet, actually. Um, it's, well, it was going to be on my to-buy list, but I've heard apparently there's no single player in it. Oh, my God. There's really? no arcade what, mode. What, it's just uh, battling? Yeah, apparently. You know, like on the old Street Fighter, if your mates weren't around, you could play it on your own. Just yeah, yeah. Just like a list of the enemies. Apparently that mode isn't in it anymore. Oh, okay. So, well, uh, yeah. Yeah, because they're saying, you know, well, with gaming the way it is now, mm -hmm. people don't sit together and fight anymore, and they're kind of exploring that. There's a whole little section on the uh, psychology of fighting games as well, so it's quite interesting. <laughs> so uh, we'll leave a link to that in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Worth a watch if you're in the UK. Yep. Now, uh, some Nintendo news. I don't know if you've seen this, Dan. This is all over the internet, and you guys have probably seen this already, mm -hmm. which is that 3D NES emulator that brings 2D classics into real life, <laughs> into 3D spaces. Have you seen it? Right, I'm looking here then. There's a little um, a demo of Mario. So, yeah, it basically looks a bit like it could be like an early 3D game of kind of just angle stuff down and give it kind of a 3D perspective. Yeah, so I guess it's maybe it's an algorithm or something that, mm -hmm. you know, converts every block 
into a kind of 3D <laughs> one. And they're saying it's working good on some games, like Castlevania is supposed to be really good, mm-hmm. and then other games it's not working so well. So I think there must be some kind of automated process. It must be painstaking to go through frame by frame and every object and every block in here as well. Yeah, I think, yeah, it kind of redraws it. And it's, it's quite interesting, though, uh, displaying these old games in a new in new way. I think Nintendo, they've just got this thing about 3D. Even going back to the Virtua Boy, then obviously the 3DS. They just want to get 3D out there, I think, don't they? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I was thinking when I saw this, I thought it would be kind of cool to have this on the 3DS, like a proper old-school 3D Mario game that was in true 3D. Yeah, that's what they're saying, you know, mm-hmm. uh, a 3D NAS mm-hmm. has, uh, has 3D support. I don't know if you'd be able to get it on the 3DS. So uh, you'll pop a link to that if you want to check it out. Now, one of my favourite games on the C64, uh, a friend of mine used to have Pang. Was always yeah, it's, it's like an arcade classic, wasn't it? Yeah, that Japanese was... game, I think, yeah. wasn't it? And uh, they're bringing this back then. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've seen that they've made a remake. Maybe as a Pang fan, you can explain more to <laughs> us. Well, this was, it was a big 8-bit game, and it came out on the Amiga and the ST and stuff like that as well. And by the looks of this, they've given it a reboot. And uh, there's a little trailer here of it running on the PS4. And I've got to say, you know, it is, a lot of games get like a, a reboot and they kind of go a little bit over the top and ruin them. But I've got to say, the graphics on this... They look improved, but I don't think they go like all out and kind of spoil the original essence of the game by the looks of it. Yeah, it looks like they haven't gone for hyper-realistic, but they've mm. gone more cartoony. Yeah. Nice, defi- defined cartoon. There's not explosions everywhere and yeah, flashing no. neon and like, like there isn't so Even many of these Even though it reviews. does say there's all new power-ups, including flamethrowers and lasers. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there's only the trailer available at the moment, but it's going to be out April 19th, available on PS4, Xbox One, PC and mobile as well. Pang, I'll have to give it a go. I'm uh, one I've missed. Yeah, it was a good game back in the day, Pang. Now, something else that's coming back as well. Everything's getting a reboot at the moment. Did you ever play Day of the Tentacle? Oh, my God. This is this is when I left Amiga and got into the PC, mm-hmm. when Full Throttle was coming out, Day of the Tentacle, all of these great point and clicks with full voice and motion. You know, mm-hmm. they were oh, just amazing. And Day of the Tentacle is well funny. If you've ever played it, it's one of the funniest... Uh, games you know you lucas arcs classic and it's uh, through good old games mm-hmm. so so you can pre-order it because sometimes these reboots are a bit hit and miss i remember do you remember loom no i don't actually remember Loom. i remember the dig that was a point no that was, was that was way later loom okay. i think was one of their first ones it was 1990 it came out and if you go on monkey island when you go in the scum bar there's a pirate there that goes ask me about loom and then he gives you like an advert for <laughs> it he's advertising the uh, <laughs> but all, yeah, all, yeah, yeah. The, that was one of the funniest scenes in monkey island but all the way through the monkey island franchise even up to like curse yeah, in yeah. 97 and like the, the tales ones that came out about five six years ago they've kind of got a a running joke that the laws mentioned loom at some point in the monkey island <laughs> okay. game so that's kind of threaded through the entire series but um they did reboot Loom on the PC in around probably about 94, 95. Yeah. And they made it a CD-ROM title. But it was kind of the early days of CD where, you know, they only had the 600 megabyte storage and they yeah. had to chop a lot of the game out. A lot of the dialogue to get the, the talking in there and upgrade the graphics to 256 colours. But I saw it on Steam only about a week ago and I thought, I wouldn't mind playing Loom again. So I give it a download. But unfortunately, it's that PC talky version uh, with like half so, the game missing. Yeah, so. so it's not like, this one looks insane. Yeah. This is, you know amazingly redone and actually um it was never released on the amiga but i know there's an aga version that's what? doing the rounds of day of the tentacle what is this like a scum vm thing or something is it yeah scum okay. vm I, d- I don't know have you ever used scum vm Dan? yeah scum vm's awesome so if you're not familiar with that it's um it's an engine that's available for many platforms and it lets you play because all of these old lucas arts games and stuff used the same engine didn't they really yeah yeah different variants of it and uh I, th- I think that's probably where, you know, there was the scum bar in Monkey Island. It stands for, uh, it was actually based from Manic Mansion. Right, is that what the original was? Which was the started? first okay. one, yeah. So it's script creation utility for Manic Mansion. I never knew that. That's quite interesting. <laughs> yeah, so I guess Manic Mansion must have been the first one that they created mm-hmm. and then continued developing that engine. And Well, I imagine the engine got updated as it went throughout the years, but I think it was, I think Curse of Monkey Island was the last game that used it, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah. And that did. was about 97, I think. They but even, out. you know, 89 or 1990, they would have Leisure Suit Larry's, I think. That's Sierra, wasn't it? It was Sierra. But yeah, yeah, but a lot of these games, and basically what you can do if you haven't tried ScumVM before, you can download it. And even if um, this particular game didn't exist on the platform that you're playing on, you can still play the games in this kind of wrapper. Yes, yeah. Well, they're they're also saying, actually, here, it's all compatible with Sierra stuff as well. Okay. So you've got everything, Space Quest, King's Quest, you know, Leisure Suit Larry 
all of the games, Simon the Sorcerer. No, that was a great game, yeah. Everything was based on this engine. And yeah, you can use it on any format as well. So, you know, you can get ScumVM player on your uh, tablet. Yeah. It's basically like MAME for like point-and-click adventures, isn't it? Really? Yeah, yeah, totally. Like, well, there hasn't been many point-and-clicks around recently, have there? Well, I think, you know, a lot of these, because we mentioned a couple of weeks ago about the Monkey Island reboot, you know, I've got it on my iPad with the full talking and like I said, Loom and that. I think a lot of them, but... They tend to be remakes of the old ones. It was a very kind of personal adventure, wasn't it? When you were sitting at home, pointing and clicking and exploring a world by yourself, mm-hmm. it's very kind of personal. And now, multiplayer, I guess you can do that with Well, there are group. Still, there's still good adventure games out there, but I think it's more stuff like, um, like The Walking Dead and Life is Strange and stuff, which the more like just cinematic movies that you kind of take part in and shape the story, but you haven't quite got the, the exploration that you got with point and click. Or the comedy. As yeah, they are, you know they. Comedy's always... missing from games these days a lot, isn't it? Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they're all too serious. You want to have something stupid. But I remember, you know, just playing Monkey Island one and two and stuff, and like there'd be certain things you do that were just ridiculous, and they'd have you in stitches. What, and, like... what was that bit where you? I, I all I can remember from Monkey Island that I played quite a bit of it was a. Uh, Falling off the side of a thing and then bouncing back up <laughs> yeah. off a rubber tree. Yeah, a rubber, you, know? you, you yeah. think you're dead, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> it pops this like requester up over the screen, and goes, you know, so, for the first time in this game you've died or something like that, yeah. and you think, oh, what? I didn't know you could die. Then like, yeah, he bounces off a branch of a rubber tree, just appears again, <laughs> and goes, phew. That's great, but it was um, hilarious. And also Simon the Sorcerer, you know the woodworm. Yeah, yeah. Shouting at you, calling you racist. And <laughs> so it was great. I just remember one scene in Monkey Island. It was the end when you got the cannibals locked you up. Yeah, <laughs> and you found your way out of the little hut, and then you go back, and every time they put like a bigger lock on. Until the end, it was like the the multi save five thousand, or like you know from like two hundred years in the future. So uh, yeah, I think you know point and click games. It's kind of quite innocent looking back to. A game where there was not really much audio. I mean, on the Scum engine, you had kind of like, it was a bit like MIDI, wasn't it? Way playing yeah, music yeah. and stuff. But um, there'd be no speech or anything at all. It was kind of like reading a book, I suppose, wasn't it? You kind of you'd come up with the voices in your head and that, and people were just so used to that. Like you know that kind of format of doing point and click. It was mm-hmm. just always the same, wasn't it? It was like you know FPSs would change around and stuff, but point and click was solidly Scum. My brother and I would sit down and play these games, and I kind of, I kind of do the voices of the characters. <laughs> so he'd only be like, you know, five, six years old, but we, we'd have a good time. It'd be like, you know, like playing out a play. Really, it was, it was always a good laugh. So, yeah, I wouldn't mind going back and playing Loom though, and uh, and this. Yeah, I'll have to give that a go. Brother. Actually, yeah, that's another game with a lot of humour in there as well. And uh, yeah, Day of the Tentacle. And so this is coming out on well, the time we're recording this next week, so March twenty second. And uh, this is a full HD update of the original game. Oh, wow. And they're going to be released on the PC by the looks of it as well. So, uh, And a PS4 game coming out a bit later on the Vita as well. So, Oh, nice. This is, this is pretty interesting, man. This shows how much interest there still is in the Dreamcast. And it's Fantasy Star Online, which mm-hmm. was one of the original kind of, you know, 56K yeah. multiplayer games. It was one of the first consoles to have a, a modem, wasn't it? I think yeah. it was the first one to have it off the shelf, yeah, because it was built in, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So. Well, I, I've actually got the broadband adapter. Oh, those are rare. Yeah, they are. I've got, I look on eBay and they're like 150 quid. I've got one. I haven't really used it all that much, though, but I, I was watching a couple of years ago. There's a video of a guy, he's a British guy, on uh, YouTube, and he actually he shows you the walkthrough of setting up Fantasy Star Online. Yeah. And there are still people playing this. That's it. This is service. exactly what this article is saying. You know... um, this guy, Soda Boy, who's a, a, a site ad, admin, has uh, created custom server software. So these people have signed up and they're still playing it. And he says there's 300 active players. Really? Still from around the world playing Fanster. I'm going to have to give it a go because there was... Do you remember when the original Xbox Live closed down? Yeah. That was about, about 2009, I think. Yeah. And they closed it down for the original Xbox. I remember there was, and there probably still is, a bit of software that you can download... And you basically jack your um, Xbox into your PC, and then it redirects Xbox Live to these private servers. And I thought, yeah, that's really cool. Tried it all that, got it all set up, and there's like one person on, you know. <laughs> so I thought, after all that, no one's even on it. But this, if there's 300 active people. That, that's, that's really crazy, you know. You know what I think that says, though? I think that kind of speaks volumes about the, the commitment to the Dreamcast and its fans, that they'll actually go to all the effort of doing it. Yeah, and you know, maybe that world was a, a fabulous world that they want to keep going back to. You know, a lot of my friends, uh, they play some mods. There's this mod called mm-hmm. The Specialist for Counter-Strike. Hardly anyone plays that. I think there's 10 people in the world or 20. 
but they all still keep the server going. And they're still, you know. <laughs> now, that reminds me of actually getting back to Xbox Live. Do you ever read the story about the final players on Halo 2? No. There was this group of guys that was on a forum, and I think Microsoft closed it down, but they left the server running for a few months. Basically, if you turn your Xbox off, you couldn't reconnect to Xbox Live again. Okay. But if you were playing already, it would let you stay on. <laughs> so they had this competition to be the last man standing in Halo 2. And I think the last one, I think something like his console just crashed or he had a power cut or something, but he stayed on for about four months or something after the servers were shut down. <laughs> just walking yeah, around. Because like, yeah. you know? <laughs> I think that was the original, um, would have to get Lord British on the show one day. That would yeah, be yeah. amazing because he did Ultima online and... Uh, that was complete chaos when that ended. I think someone managed to kill Lord British or something, and then the whole place, thousands of people would try to crash the server by stacking Anarchy. furniture on top of stuff. <laughs> yeah, it was chaos. But I think people kind of do forget that the, the Dreamcast was one of the first online consoles as well. There was modems you could buy for the Saturn and even the Mega Drive. Yeah. Um, but I think the Dreamcast has the accolade of kind of being the first system that was shipped with wasn't, online out of the box. Wasn't that one of the things that they did to try and save the Dreamcast at the end? Was they, it SegaNet or something? SegaNet, yeah, and yeah. they said, you know, you get a free Dreamcast if you sign up with this. You get f- all these games for free, and mm-hmm. we'll bring more. I think it's very US-based, though. I don't think we ever got SegaNet. I think here. there was something over here, but it was kind of piggybacked onto the back of another ISP. It might have been like free servers or something like that. Okay. But yeah, I mean, the good thing about having a 56K modem, though, is you can obviously just dial direct to a number, can't you? So. Yeah. That's the one. So, yeah, if you want to play yeah, Fantasy Star Online, if you've uh, got your Dreamcast maybe gathering dust in the cupboard. Yeah, contact Soda Boy. We'll give you the link. <laughs> <laughs> now, this is quite a big news story in the week. I mean, it's, um, it's modern gaming, but I think historically this is the first time we've seen anything like this happen. Yeah, and it's working on the theme that we've just been discussing as well. So, <laughs> <laughs> so the Xbox One is getting cross-platform multiplayer. Yeah, for all different platforms as well. They're saying they want it on Windows 10, mm-hmm. but also other platforms in the industry. So. Which yeah, can only mean the PS4. Yeah, <laughs> well, there, yeah, there won't be much industry left. <laughs> but. The annoying thing about consoles, is, you know, I'm a console gamer, I do like playing console games, but I've got mates that have got Xboxes and I've got friends that have got Playstations, and it has been a case in the past where I've bought the same copy of a game on both platforms. Yeah, same here, because I used to run a PC gaming community mm-hmm. and we'd be like, right, okay, the new GTA is coming out. Everyone get it on the PC mm-hmm. or everyone get it on the Xbox. And you'd have to kind of go with the one that the majority of people own to get all your mates playing. On yeah, it, you know? and it's expensive. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Adds up. I'm not a big Call of Duty player anymore, but a few years ago when you know, it was kind of at its peak, I'd like my brother had, and all his friends were on Xbox, and like my mate, he's got a PlayStation 3, and like kind of those, that group of mates of mine are all more PlayStation guys. Well, we, we started gifting people stuff mm-hmm. in our community so we were like you know oh i can't afford it on the pc it's in esteem you know yeah, just yeah. so that we could get enough people to join it keep playing on that <laughs> you know but now by the looks of this end so it's a letter that the um that chris carla the director of independent games on xbox one and windows 10 he's posted this letter on the xbox website now microsoft are really trying to get xbox and windows 10 closer together aren't they definitely uh, also because they're trailing a bit behind the ps4 yeah so they need to kind of bring xbox what was the windows 10 uh line a billion devices yeah that was which is obviously a lot more than xboxes yeah there. i mean pc gaming's had a big comeback recently and i think microsoft being traditionally a pc company it's logical for them to do that and i was reading an article during the week actually that someone from microsoft one of the the heads of xbox was saying that he wanted the next xbox to be upgradable Mm. So essentially, like a PC that you put modular. On your, yeah, maybe, well, yeah, it sounds like a PC, doesn't it? <laughs> Did you uh, ever use uh, games for Windows Live? No, GWL. No, I never done. It was one of the most awful systems where they tried to integrate the Xbox before. Yeah, it was. Oh, it was just awful. And uh, was it 360 or original? It was. It was on a GTA 4. Okay, and. It ruined the whole system for the mm-hmm. PC. It was literally like you had to log into that, Games for Live, then you had to log into Rockstar Social Club, then you had to log into Steam. <laughs> Jumping through a million hoops <laughs> yeah, to get yeah, there. Yeah, totally. And Just G- so you could get the same stats. You couldn't even play with the other guys. Is that all it was, stats? Yeah, yeah. See, GTA 4 wasn't even worth the effort. I didn't like no, that game. they but wrecked the PC release for that. It would be interesting. Have Sony kind of responded to this then? I don't know because, yeah, they they, they must be working with Sony to work with the server technology, or are they just going to, like, shove a load of Xbox players suddenly into the... <laughs> well, this article's on Wired here, and it says, we've reached out to Sony for comment, but they haven't heard back at the moment. 
So this is kind of, you know, this, um, as I describe it, a utopian world where, you know, Xbox One and PS4 players are matched hand in hand, which I think, you know, for Microsoft, that would be a good thing. I don't know whether Sony need to, though. Yeah, no, they, they're probably selling enough anyway. I thought this was quite an interesting discussion. I've been, uh, I've been on 4chan again, Ravi. Oh, no. The dark side of the <laughs> internet. <laughs> but there is a really good, if you haven't checked out um, 4chan, stay away from, like, you know, Slash B and uh, the politically incorrect forums and all well, that. Well, actually, 4chan's <laughs> quite good now. Stay away from 8chan, guys. <laughs> that's all I'm saying. Yeah, that's even grittier one, yeah. isn't it? But, I mean, there are some interesting subs on, um, on 4chan. In particular, there's one called Slash VR. They only started it last year, and it's uh, retro gaming. Okay. And it's got the usual, you know, 4chan profanity and all that in there. But they do occasionally have some really interesting discussions. And one of them was, should you mod your retro consoles or keep them in their original state? Interesting. Very interesting. Because I've got some 1200s at home and Mm -hmm. I've got the uh, Commodore version, the S-Con version. S-Con version is, I don't count as original, covered in signatures (laughs) completely, you know. The Commodore one's kept intact. Yeah. but, I mean, you do often see guys doing stuff like RGB mods and that, don't you, to, like, old, you know, systems and getting them looking nice or HDMI out. Even I've seen people doing I've, the like I think sand. there's two levels of mods. I mm. think there's one level of mod where it's the guy who buys the PlayStation original when it comes out and then wants it to look cool, so sprays it with a crappy spray oh, can. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's the worst. <laughs> Those are the worst kind of mods. And then there's the guys who are later on looking at it and mm. going... Let's add some new cool stuff in, and I quite like those. Oh, there are some awesome ones. I mean, I've seen there's a, an Amiga 600. I don't know if you've seen that. It's kind of a, an audio one that's got like tuning knobs all the way across the top. Oh and wow! LCD no, displays in there. You'd love that. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll find a picture of it. I'll put it in the show notes if I can find it. But it looks like you know, it looks like it could have fallen out of some guy's like army pack or something. It's all camouflage and all yeah. that as well. But, but also, um, there's okay. There's this question with these GoTech. Mm-hmm. Oh, drives. There are some horrific mods I've There's seen. There's some about. horrific mods because people think that they have to destroy their computer mm. just to get USB compatibility. And it's like, man, these are old machines. They're not going to make yeah. any more. Well, that said, they do make new cases. So, yeah, that's yeah. the thing. Yeah, as well. Like, you know, a lot of people have probably wrecked CDTV keyboards and mm. wrecked other kind of old PlayStations and stuff, spraying them. Yeah. And then the moulds come out like you know the yeah. 3DO moulds for the uh, chameleon the now dead chameleon <laughs> so it's an interesting topic I mean I'm not much of a purist but I think like you mentioned there about the GoTech I've seen guys who've got like Atari STs and Amigas who've literally looks like they've just punched the side of the case in to make a big hole yeah in it. or they've just gone at it with a Stanley knife yeah. and it's not even square it's, it's like, like if you're going to do it at least do it properly yeah. but then there are some other mods where They'll put a nice little LCD screen in there. They'll, you know, dremel it out and it'll look really nice. And guys add stuff like, you know, HDMI outputs to the Dreamcast and stuff I've seen people doing. And I think if they look like they belong in the original product, if it, if it fits in well with the rest of the yeah. design, yeah. then I think it's awesome. And then, I don't but... mind a bit of a rough job as long as it's not like flaky paint and, you know, just like an awful kind of uh, really badly done. I, I saw like there was um, a guy who posted in one of the uh, Amiga groups the other day and he's like, you know, don't flame me for this, but he showed a picture, I don't know if you saw it, of um, he basically chopped an Amiga 1200 in half for a keyboard. He towered it, basically, but he chopped the case in half and there's all putty along the back of it to kind of stop the board falling out. And he just painted it, like, you know, with, like, wall paint or something. It's, like, it looks horrendous. But he's like, I'm cringing at what 15-year-old me did. I thought it was cool back then, but... Yeah, that's it. Like, I, I always think, also, you get people who have underpowered machines mm-hmm. and try to make them look overpowered with like go faster stripes and all LEDs these everywhere yeah, yeah. <laughs> now uh, fans of the Dizzy series we mentioned a couple of weeks ago about a new um, CD32 compilation and there is a, another Dizzy game that's just Ooh. been released now this is a, a fan made title oh wicked wow this is called um, Adventureland Dizzy Adventureland. Yeah, I'm so. even seeing on this uh, site that you've linked me Dizzy in the Dungeons and yeah, there's a few Dizzy little demo Quest. titles I've here never as well. Seen these ones, is it? Oh, this is um, JDCStudios.co.uk, and we've got to give a shout out to Neil and the team at um, Indie Retro News, who really good news website for retro gaming, and they've, they've covered this actually. This um, Adventureland Dizzy title is available, and apparently this is quite a big game as well. It's got 110 screens. Wow, which wow. for a Dizzy and it game looks quite like Magic Land. Yeah, I imagine, you know, looking at it graphically, it looks like maybe the graphics are taken from other Dizzy titles. It looks a bit like Treasure Island as well, some of the, the scenes in here. But you, you can download it, it's free if you want to try it. And the it. one thing I love about the Dizzy games is the storylines. So, if this has good storylines, I'm definitely going to play it. <laughs> Especially with all his family. Do you know the names of them? Like Denzel 
Uh, I wasn't a big Dizzy player, Daisy, I must admit. Dizzy, Dizzy. It's all with D. Okay, <laughs> right, okay. Daphne, there's like, yeah, loads of them. Yeah, so this is a fan-made game, and apparently there's been no feedback from you know, the Oliver Twins who originally made the game. So, okay, so at the moment, it's up and available if you want to give it a download. And uh, it's on PC as well, so you can play okay. it on modern platforms. So if you want to give it a download. Now, we've talked about VR quite a bit over the last couple of weeks. I think it's fair to say it's probably the, the biggest buzz yep. in the gaming industry right now. But I thought this was quite interesting. Um, on Reddit, you know Daisy, the game Daisy. Oh, yes, I'm a big, big, big Daisy fan. Well, uh, Dean Hall, the guy behind that, He's been talking about... Rocket Hall, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The full title in there. Yeah. He's kind of come out and said that he sees virtual reality as just an expensive Wii. It's interesting because um, we've got a, a listener called Vigilante Gamer who comments a lot, uh, mm. and he's an old Amiga guy. He does amazing Daisy videos. Okay. Now, the difference with Daisy is there's no set agenda, there's no set game. You're just shoved in this sandbox world, mm. and the situation is based on how the other person reacts or how you react to them. So it's kind of like a whole new level of interaction. Mm-hmm. Like, you you look at Vigilante Gamer's site and he'll show, you know, like meeting someone in a bar or mm-hmm. like the strange meet at the police station or something. And there'll be whole situations, hostage situations. It's great. You know, we've bumped into people in the street before and then, you know, they have... To survive, they have to sing Justin Bieber songs. <laughs> like, you know, kind of, you can create your own game with it. So I can see where he's coming from here. Well, I think, you know. He doesn't think it's so innovative. That's... Well, I think, you know, would virtual reality work in a game like that? That's kind of the. I guess it probably would, though, in that kind of environment. But I think his argument is that he's kind of experimenting with it. His studio are doing some VR stuff, but they're not. A lot of companies seem to be like, you know, banking their entire fortunes on virtual reality and putting everything into it. Whereas he's saying he kind of sees it as maybe it's going to be a bit of a gimmick that'll last a couple of years and phase out again. Maybe it's not going to quite change the industry the way that people were. I think he says here his greatest concern is overcreating games that are going to be too big because he thinks the average player time of a virtual reality game will be around 20 minutes. It'll be a casual game. Okay, yeah. Because, you know, when you're playing DayZ, mm-hmm. it'll be eight hours. Yeah. Are you going to walk around your room with a, a virtual reality headset on for eight hours? Yeah. Probably not, are you, to be no, fair? You sustain quite a lot of injuries. <laughs> but I think there's another aspect to it as well. I mean, I've, I've got, you know, we mentioned Google Cardboard on the show. I, I, I play around with that. But again, I'll put it on for 10, 15 minutes. It's a bit of fun, but it's not quite up there with the, the specs of the Oculus Rift or, you know, the, the Samsung one, for example. But I think when you're wearing a virtual reality headset, you really are cutting yourself off from the entire world, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, especially if you've got the headphones. Yeah. And I've, I've only used it a very small time, so mm-hmm. you've got a lot more experience with uh, VR. But I think when I often game, I'll be sitting on the couch and, like, my missus will be at home and she may be doing, sitting on the other couch, she'll be on her phone or she'll be, you know, making dinner. We'll, we'll be chatting while I'm gaming and stuff like mm-hmm. that. But I think if you've got a partner or even a family, putting a virtual reality headset on, you're cutting yourself off from everything, aren't you? The entire environment around you, even, like, gaming at college and that kind of thing it's interesting as well because i saw this whole new thing about this i can't even remember what it's called someone may be able to say in the notes but Mm -hmm. it's a virtual reality social network which is very interesting because facebook owned virtual reality yeah yeah yeah. and uh this was basically a small island and these guys went with the virtual reality headset put it on and you're sat in an island but all these other people in the world have headsets on like Second Life. <laughs> yeah, and you can just communicate with wow, them, okay. and it creates a whole new kind of dimension. And as soon as you see that, you can see why Facebook have bought. Yeah, <laughs> wow. You know. I did wonder why they bought that. That does make sense, though. But that, that means if your wife wanted to, wants to tell you that dinner's ready, she just puts it on and comes in the island. Dinner's ready. <laughs> <laughs> dinner's ready. Oh, sorry, I'm with my other wives. <laughs> <laughs> my virtual wife. Yeah. Leave us in peace. Yeah. So that was quite interesting, though. I mean, virtual reality... I, some people kind of say it's a bit like, you know, 3D to the movie industry. Because, mm. you know, virtual reality, as our audience, I'm sure, are aware, is not a new thing. It's been around for a long time. And there was actually a comment on... Uh, I did a video about the Atari Jaguar on YouTube, and I think it must have been a younger guy who'd looked at it, and it was around the time of the first VR explosion, yeah. wasn't it? And they were meant to bring out a virtual reality headset for the Jag. And there's a fully working prototype, and I think there's one game, Missile Command, it was, randomly, <laughs> that has got the, the VR headset support in the game itself, you know, if you've got it for the Jag, but obviously there's only a couple of prototypes of the headset that exist. But this guy commented on my video, goes, what, virtual reality in 1994? Impossible. 
impossible. Yeah, oh, like, like he didn't know it had been around before. You yeah, know yeah, I mean? yeah. That's it. It's it's kind of like, oh, this is a new thing. We yeah. thought we thought it had its day. <laughs> you know? Yeah, like, dude. Like, I thought you know when it got to like ninety five, I was oh VR. That's I think it, it's over. VR was actually one of those things that you know. It was like pyramid scheme or something, something you wouldn't invest in. You know, even now, though, I think Google Cardboard and this McDonald's headset that we were talking about yeah. last week, that kind of makes it accessible. But stuff like the Oculus Rift and that, it's really for, you know, it's got to, you've got to be an ultra hardcore enthusiast to fork out like maybe four grand you're talking yeah. for a full set of, aren't you, yeah, really? totally. It puts it out the hands of casual gamers. You've got to really be enthusiastic about it. But I think the first time around VR, it was more the arcade environment, but arcades are not really around anymore. Mm. Um, and the tech wasn't there. But, yeah, also, you know, when they first did VR, Mm -hmm. it was multiplayer. Yeah. So you had four people playing it or two people playing it. Next to each other. And you're both next to each other in the arena. Mm -hmm. At the moment, I've seen a lot of the VR, apart from this social stuff, has been just sitting there experiencing stuff on your own. Yeah. Yeah, you're right, yeah. Which, because the arcades aren't there anymore, that's probably the main reason in that, isn't it? It's got to be online now, but then, again, you need your friend to also fork out four four grand for a setup, don't you? Now, I'm going to talk about something pretty rude at the moment, which is um, 3D pornography for VR headsets. I've been seeing that everywhere. (laughs) Which is absolutely all over the internet, and uh, lots of people have been using it. And uh, one of the funny things is there's been lots of stories of people with VR headsets of uh, immersed in what they're doing and then someone walking <laughs> in the room not noticing you know when you're wearing that headset man you know what I mean? yeah. you're disconnected from the world anything can happen mum knocks on your door you don't hear her <laughs> yeah, that's it so it's a it's a complete uh, uh, a strange thing it is going it's, to these other worlds it's exciting but I think you know it's um, the price has got to be down there for the average c- consumer to take it seriously I think but yeah yeah, we'll, we'll see where it goes obviously we'll keep an eye on VR well uh, there was I, I used to be in this TV, into this TV show called The Tribe mm-hmm. and they had this whole thing where they invented VR called Paradise, and it was so good. Their lives were just so crap that they'd just sit there in the VR headsets and completely like, space out. Could be Red know. Dwarf, better yeah. than life, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, better than yeah, life, that was awesome. that's it. Or the holodeck on Star Trek. I'll buy one when that comes along, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, thank you so much for checking out this week's episode of The Retro Hour. You can, of course, get it every Friday from our website, theretrohour.com. And now, this week's guest... Yes, we're bringing you someone that no one else will bring. This is Galahad of Fairlight. So this week on the Retro Hour, maybe a slightly controversial guest, as uh, this guy was involved in some of the biggest cracking and piracy groups on the Amiga back in the day, uh, groups like Fairlight and LSD. Welcome to the Retro Hour, Galahad, where we'll start at the beginning. What first sparked your interest in computers? Um, well, I was uh, quite young a long time ago, and oh, how old was I? Five, and they got a BBC Model B. In fact, no, I think it was a BBC Model A back then in the school for the first time and I remember the first thing I ever typed on the computer was play Astro Wars and it took me about three minutes to type it out. <laughs> I'd never seen a keyboard before. Curiously enough, it didn't play Astro, Astro Wars. It basically told me to um, get stuffed. But <laughs> I, even, even back then I was impressed by the games it could do. There was Killer Gorilla, there was Felix and the Evil Weevils and all sorts of early beep stuff. And I thought, yeah, this is this is quite good. And then I uh, saw a Commodore sixty four. and thought, yeah, that's that's what I want. Uh, my parents had different ideas. They were they were entranced by the idea of educational software. So I ended up with a BBC Micro, which was about the least well supported computer in the entire country. School um, computer, wasn't it? Yeah, you you ended up getting conversions of of stuff. Well, I don't know about a year after everybody else, and it was always not quite as good. I think I think Elite was the only one that was considered the de facto version on the Beeb at the time. So yeah, it was seeing a computer running at school that got me into computers. How did this kind of develop then? Um, what stuff were you doing on the computers later on? Uh, well, actually, nothing. All I did was play games on the thing. Um, I didn't try and do any kind of programming. I didn't do anything. All I was interested in doing was going to my mate's house who had a, a twin um, tape deck so with a fast mode on it so we could copy the cassettes really fast and then go home and see whether or not it actually worked because you'd use some rubbish Chinese cassette tape so you might have to pedal back over to his house and do another one on a, on a better quality tape. 
But as far as computers went and the BBC went, playing games was it. So that kind of um, tape-to-tape copying, was that kind of your first introduction into the, the piracy scene then? Well, it, I, I wouldn't even call it a piracy scene. It was, a, it was, it was, a, it was a, a mate of mine whose dad was a copper and they, he didn't mind his son copying games for people. And, you know, there was no protection or anything like that on the Beeb. I think they did protection for discs, but back then for cassettes and that, there was nothing apart from the the odd <clears throat> colour chart, what have you. Um, with Manic Mine, had this horrible piece of paper with a million colours on, but I was one of those people that duplicated it onto another piece of paper so that I could play it. I didn't have the skills back then to... Uh, to crack anything, um, it, it, it it was beyond me. My abilities were playing games back then, and everything else was just um, alchemy and magic, as far as I was concerned. It was so rampant as well with the tape piracy. Uh, you know, we'd all be doing it at home. I think it's, just, it's 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 been the same with every single format. You know, once there's once there's an easy way to copy it, I think software companies were just hoping to get a few good week sales out of it, and then it was straight on to the next game. Yeah, uh, the games really, that was it. I wasn't really interested in games until, uh, well, I wasn't interested in doing anything else until I f- saw an Amiga for the first time. And I pretty much ignored it till a friend of mine at school said, oh, I've got one of these new Commodore Amigas. I'm like, what's that then? So I got invited to go round and holy moly, my uh, that was just, well, the BBC never got touched ever again <laughs> after that. Not even for the the odd nostalgia trip. It was just like, Blue holy shit, up. this guy's got an arcade machine in his bedroom. <laughs> this is amazing. With a with a fateful diversion with an Atari ST very briefly, because I believe the salesman that the Atari ST was just like the Amiga. And when I got at home, I realised it was nothing like the Amiga and it sounded awfully like a BBC as well. We so. all make mistakes. <laughs> oh, yes, we make mistakes. But thankfully, my uh, my dad was quite happy to take it back to the shop because he likes arguing with shop assistants. And uh, I got uh, got my first Amiga with Kickstart 1.2, secondhand from some guy at Tesco's. I already had the games copied, ready for it, got it home, set it all up. And, uh, yeah, well, the rest is history, I suppose. I never actually purchased a piece of original software for the Amiga. I think it was one, actually, Lemmings 2, and that was it. Out of the- I did buy quite a few games. I was a believer in, if I liked it enough, I would go and buy it. And I have got quite a collection of, of originals, but I would say that the amount of originals that I had versus how many copies I had, yeah, the balance might <laughs> be more towards the crap copies more than the originals. Um more than anything, part of the reason was the cost of the damn things. You go from games for like nine ninety nine, and then it just a massive leap up to like twenty five ninety nine, which is what Amiga stuff used to be. It always used to be a five or more than the Atari ST version, and spookily enough, you were getting the exact same version, and it wasn't much better. Do you think Amiga games were too expensive around that time? Oh, way too expensive, um, especially when, with with the, with the exception of a few developers like the likes of. Um, Enterprise software. The, the, the guys when when the Amiga started, who really really put the effort in. The, the, a lot of the other software companies really didn't put the effort in to warrant charging an extra fifteen quid over what people were used to paying. I mean, a premier game on the Commodore sixty four. What was it? It was between nine ninety nine and fourteen ninety nine, depending if you got the cassette or the disc. But the Amiga was like a a massive jump. And all it was, it was in nine times out of ten, it was a hastily cobbled together ST version um, with maybe a couple of bells or whistles if the uh, the person doing the conversion had the time. Um, it, it was the ST version, and you're thinking, Jesus, my Amiga doesn't seem that powerful at all. It can barely do anything uh, better than the Atari ST. Well, Galahad, you know, obviously you said then you were a kid who played games mainly. How did that move on from you just playing games to becoming part of these massive cracking teams then? I wasn't very good at doing music, although I changed that later on and actually had a piece of music featured in the game. I wasn't very good at graphics. I wasn't very good at demo programming. That, that was a level of maths that I just didn't possess. But I like messing around with stuff. And I suppose the first... The first time I started showing an, an interest and a, and a leaning towards the darker side of things was Amiga Disk Drives Inside and Out by Abacus, um, which was a book. And the other thing was an action replay Mark One, which was an absolute pile of crap. It really was rubbish. 
but it gave you a chance to, um, you know, be nosy around games and see what was going on. And if you screwed it up, you just reset the computer and you carried on um, and you could be back to where you were within a couple of uh, couple of minutes. And it was just more inquisitiveness than anything else. And, and I was actually a self-taught programmer on the Amiga. I didn't pick up a book that taught me uh, Motorola 68000. I am... Um, it was through action replay and doing experiments in memory, assembling the instructions and looking at the monitor to see what the results were, which is how I taught myself coding. So um, you're known as a member of Scoopex, Fairlight, LSD, Dual Crew, Dual Shining Crew. I was wondering how the pirates actually contacted you or how you got in contact with them. I used to mail trade with Parasite of LSD, um, I, I was in nothing groups before then. I was just doing my own stuff, doing basic cracks. Um, but it also gave me a chance to kind of experiment and hone my craft, so to speak, without the pressures of actually being on the scene. Um, and I was mail trading with Parasite of LSD. And then one day asked me, did I want to join? Yeah, yeah, right, I'll join LSD, which at the time seemed absolutely awesome, but... Later in life scenes, faintly ridiculous. Wrote a few articles for Grapevine. Wrote a cracking tutorial for Carrier Command, which some kind soul resurrected on an English Amiga board. Man, I was not very cool at writing when I was younger. I'm quite <laughs> embarrassed by it, to be honest. Yeah, and from LSD, where the hell do I go from LSD? I joined Scoopex for two weeks, and then I was mail trading with Red Devil of Dual Crew. Dual crew started spreading the stuff around, and then there was a couple of other little minor releases. And then there was um, a small little release called Mortal Kombat, which um, got uh, got the attention of Fairlight, because Fairlight had actually released Mortal Kombat already, but unfortunately for Fairlight, their version wasn't 100% because um, part of the data was corrupted on one of the discs. Was that and, Sonya, uh, was it? Sonya Blade didn't work. Yeah, Sonya Blade character didn't work. <laughs> and um, Nomad was furious because, obviously, 1993 was the Amiga's final big year. And Fairlight were just an absolute releasing factory. They, I would say, out of the, the top 20 releases over Christmas time, Fairlight w released well over half and beat everybody on them. Um, and, obviously, Mortal Kombat, was a big game, was a massive game. It's irrelevant whether or not it was of any good in comparison to the SNES or the Genesis. It was a massive title on the Amiga, one which the Amiga wasn't even supposed to get um, if it wasn't for Probe. Um, we got it. Um, Nomad cracked it, and obviously they released it saying, you know, gutted, can't do the Sonya character. If anybody else gets hold of it, you know, let, let us know. And... Uh, well, obviously we got it, and I did it 100%, and then uh, I got a call from Red Devil, who was the, the guy in charge of Drill Crew Shining in the UK, and he said, look, um, do you mind if we don't release Mortal Kombat, which seemed quite mental, seeing it was the game of the year to release. And I said, well, why is that then? And he explained that um, Nomad wanted it um, so he could complete his release. He'd put full credits to us in the intro, and, he thought, and I thought to myself, well, do you know what? That doesn't seem such a bad idea. Because Dual Crew Shining by then were already starting to move away from cracking on the Amiga. They they didn't really want to be known for doing that kind of stuff. They were more interested in the demo stuff than they were the cracking side. And to be honest, a couple of releases that we did have were completely by accident that we managed to get hold of them. It was never never by design that we were going to get them. It's just that... Um, Red Devil knew the original supplier personally, and uh, he uh, agreed to supply them to us, um, and for free, which was unheard of back then as well. So, um, so yeah, I thought to myself, well, if Dual Crew Shining aren't really that keen on uh, continuing with the cracking, I'm pretty sure Fairlight are. So I said, yeah, they can have it. So I sent uh, uploaded the disc to a, a Fairlight uh, bulletin board. Nomad took it, took the data that he needed to fix his, released the fix, credited me in Red Devil. Two weeks later, I was invited to join Fairlight. So, yeah, I think I might make the right decision on that on that basis. Nice. Um, so, with these cracking groups, was there a kind of 
moral code or, you know, would people not accept money for stuff or would there be kind of a, a code of ethics? Uh, no, absolutely, resolutely not. Uh, now, to be honest, some of the some of the people on the on the scene, some people have got this romantic notion that the scene was all romanticised and people would help each other out and they would go, oh, "You can have this game, guys. Go ahead, you crack it. You're the best." No, none of that stuff. People were quite happy to stab each other in the back if they got the opportunity. Unfortunately, Fairlight also did that to. Um, uh, another group, they got their um, distribution account shut down so they couldn't get originals from the distributor up in um, up in Birmingham anymore. Um, that's kind of a, a matter of record. Um, some crackers, they, they, they were in groups for the money. Obviously, when you're, uh, you're advertising a P.O. box and a crack intro, you're not doing it because you want to have a pen pal from Finland or, or Birmingham. It's because you want lamers i.e. those that have got no no real way of getting hold of crack copies to uh, send you money and you send them games. And that's what pays for all the originals and that's what pays for um, your, your top cracker in Germany to um, not go to work that day so he'll crack the game for you so you can release it. Unfortunately for some of the groups, it was it was all about the money. I guess you had to have a lot of kind of inside industry contacts and... You know. No, you'd be, you'd be surprised, actually. N not a great deal. Uh, we did have an original supplier who used to be a member of Cortex and in a city of mayhem called Ads, and he did have a contact in Amiga magazine. He never, never ever divulged who it was, but um, he supplied a couple of games from a magazine reviewer. Um, we um, Mortal Kombat and F-17 Stealth Fighter, they came from a disc duplicator in Wales, I think it was. Some of the games, like I released BC Kid for Dual it was just Dual Crew back then. That came from a computer show. They um, rather sillyly had the Amiga inside, like a kitchen cupboard turned backwards <laughs> with, with the disc left in there. And we just kind of crowded around the unit and I slipped my hand in there and managed to get to the disc eject button and get the disc out and... Um, Less than a week later, it was released on um, released on the on the scene and that. So you'd be surprised. There wasn't a huge amount of inside contacts, but for obvious reasons, a lot of the software companies weren't stupid. They would, you know, if they had a review copy, it wasn't quite the finished game, but there was enough of a finished game where a magazine could fairly review it. They'd obviously leave markers on the disc and that, so they knew where the version had come from. So if someone was stupid enough to... Um, just willy-nilly spread copies to whoever wanted them. You know, he could soon be um, tracked down from the software company saying, why are you giving out uh, the, the discs that we've um, given you for review? Obviously, some people uh, have got a price. So, um, I guess yeah. I guess that happens now with screeners and stuff like DVD. Well, it's perfect when it comes to the Oscars and that because you, you look on the list to see who's what film's been nominated and you know for an absolute fact that there's going to be a DVD quality copy of that film on a torrent site within the week before it's even come out in the, the cinemas in this country, in the UK. So, um, you know, software companies and the entertainment industry and film industry, they complain about piracy, but then they make it so easy. And you think, really, just how badly are they effective when they can um, score so many own goals? Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't ring true sometimes, I feel. So, um, yeah. Um, that's not to say that piracy has no effect, obviously, Sometimes it can be too effective, but I'm a great believer. If you've if you've got a really good game and it's a strong title, people will go out and buy it. So, did, did you kind of view it as that then that you were giving kids like a chance to try the games out? And did you always encourage no, them to buy them? No, no. I you, I could claim it's. I, I am a great believer. If you like a game, try and support a developer if you can, and go and buy the game. But I'm not going to say I'm not going to cling on to the notion that yeah, do you know what I did all this because I'm Robin Hood, but a little bit fatter and a little bit taller. It's it's the actual thrill of the whole thing. It's the getting the phone call at nine o'clock in the morning from the original supplier. This game's going to be released today, and this game's going to be released today. Are you able to do them? And then you say yes, and then you ring up work and give them some bullshit excuses to. Why it is you won't be going into work today? 
you can't explain it's because you're going to be cracking Empire Soccer because uh, that, that's not going to work. So, um, oh dear, I'm ill again. And then you're waiting for the, the phone call from the original supplier to say that he's got it. And then you then try and identify what protection's on the disc. And then you're telling the original supplier how to get it to you. And whilst you're doing this, there's somebody in another group that's probably in the exact same situation. And it's a, it's a race against time. And it's and it's not just about the cracking. I mean, some of these games, the protection on them was an absolute joke. You literally were done in a couple of minutes. But it's the, it's the thrill of the entire process. It's the race. It's packaging the game. It's getting the cracker on there. It's getting it back to the original supplier, who then contacts the... Um, the traders to get them all onto the world headquarters and it's letting the um the sysop of the world headquarters know that we've got a release so we goes and kicks off everybody that isn't a fairlight member so all the fairlight members can be sat there waiting for the release to come and then it's uploading it to that board and then it's then hitting all the world headquarters of all the rivals and all the headquarters of of your own boards and that in the hope that you can beat everybody on the release. Were you um, scared doing it at all um, because of the authorities around at the time and, you know? Uh, the only time I got a little bit concerned about it is um, we use calling cards, AT&T calling cards. Um, I didn't ask where they came from. I didn't ask who they originally belonged to, but obviously we, we were blue boxing and using AT&T calling cards to call America. And potentially if I'd have been caught using them, then I could have been prosecuted for fraud, which would have been, you know, quite serious. I mean, my, my father didn't really have a great deal of um, interest in what I was doing, as long as I didn't caught, didn't get caught, and it meant that he didn't have to pay for the game, so he was all for it. Um, but I don't think even my father realised just how how much I was doing and what I was doing, and um, I didn't feel any desire to inform him because I'd imagine my... Uh, my uh, stay on the, the Amiga scene would have been very short-lived. So, um, yeah, I mean, from the calling card ass, I'm always never worried about the blue boxing because British Telecom really didn't give us stuff because it wasn't costing them any money. Um, but the AT&T calling cards, a few guys got busted for that big time and a couple of them had done, done jail time for it as well. So, you know, it, it, it was a concern, but when you kind of, when you get into this kind of thing, and, you know, there's a release to spread, you'll take all sorts of stupid chances because it's all part of the thrill, I suppose. Um, I, rem I remember reading Grapevine and around one time, particularly when Fast came on the scene, it seemed there was like, you know, two or three busts every issue. I mean, did you ever get busted or know anyone that did? Uh, Nomad. Nomad got busted, but they didn't know who they had and he managed to blag his way out of it. Methanoid, uh, he went under a different name. He was one of the main Sysops for Cortex. He got caught and he didn't get all of his equipment back until it was um, completely obsolete by then. They used to take everything. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They would take anything that looked computer-related. If you had a, a computer-controlled um, toaster, that was it. That was going as well. They were, uh, yeah, they were really thorough, um, but they didn't have a clue what they were doing. You know, they, they, I doubt, doubt they had anybody in the police that... Um, knew how to use an Amiga, they probably had to ask their sons, right, so how the hell do we read a disc on an Amiga? What com command do we have to put in? We've used all the PC ones and nothing works. Um, I would imagine that they just held on to them. They didn't know what the hell they were doing. Um, so, I mean, I didn't know any personally, locally to me, that got done, but um, you didn't really care, to be honest. If someone else got caught, that's just because they weren't careful enough. I mean, I only ever used calling cards when I absolutely had to. Um, other than that, it was blue boxing. And police weren't really that fussed about it, to be honest. I guess you must have left Fairlight before Operation Buccaneer and um, Fastlink. Yeah, well, obviously, I, 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 I'd spent that much effort on the Amiga that I didn't really get into anything else. I mean, I was invited by Icarus of Lightforce to get into doing some console cracking, but I'd been doing it for quite a few years, and... It's it's a thrill at first, but when you're meeting the same copy protections time and time again, or someone's made no effort to implement their protection properly, eventually the thrill starts to go a little bit because it is always nice to have a little bit of a challenge. And then the process gets when you when you get so successful where you're constantly beating other groups, it, it gets a little bit boring. And I really didn't fancy doing that all again on 
on another format. Because the Amiga was such a fantastic machine for its time, I mean, it was light years out of the PC, my attitude towards the PC is still tainted by that experience where I absolutely loathe PCs. I loathe laptops. I use them out of necessity, not because I want to. Well, kind of going on from that, I mean, one thing you often read in the magazines around then, and still people say it today, what's your opinion on the argument that software piracy was uh, one of the main reasons for killing the Amiga? Uh, rubbish, at the end of the day. Um, piracy does have an effect in, in some ways, um, but I'm a great believer that if you've got a good game, um, it will sell. It's as simple as that. If you've got a well-marketed game, it will sell. I mean, you only have to look at uh, some of the software companies that were still hanging around the Amiga in 94 and 95. Even Psygnosis was still releasing stuff in 94 stroke 95. Uh, there was lots of contributing factors, but the main one, without a shadow of a doubt, was the, the Sony PlayStation. It didn't just do the Amiga. It did the Amiga. It did the Mega Drive. It did the Super Nintendo. It, that was that was the major factor. I mean, what people seem to forget is by then the Amiga was getting on for 10 years old. And much as I love the Amiga and think it was a fantastic machine for its time, technology was moving on and was getting better and was doing stuff that the Amiga couldn't do. There's only so many times that you're going to play a platformer game before you start jealously looking over the shoulder of someone who's playing a full Vector 3D game. And, and things kind of moved on and the Amiga didn't. And that's where you blame Commodore, because much as I think the A1200 and the A4000 are decent machines, they are absolutely not what the Amiga needed. The Amiga needed something of a level, the fantastic feeling that people felt when they saw the Amiga 500 for the first time and what it did. I mean, most of the music on the Amiga is fantastic, but why was it still an 8-bit sound chip? Why wasn't it 16-bit? Why wasn't it at least, you know, 30 channels? Why was it only 2 mega chip round? Why was the blitter the same speed when it had more data to throw around? Why was it only 14 megahertz O2O to and the economy version to boot as well? Why didn't the A1200 have a, a hard drive as standard? I mean, you know, that was part of the reason why the likes of Sierra and LucasArts abandoned the Amiga was because their games were getting ridiculously big. And um, one of their games, was it 12 discs? Yeah, like Monkey Island 2, was it, yeah? Yeah, 12, yeah. 12 discs. Was, and yeah. and their, their modern stuff was was 256 colour graphics. So even if they'd done the best graphics possible on the Amiga, their latest games would have been like 40, 50 discs worth. And you just can't distribute something like that. And... I think the writing was on the wall when you had, I think it was Amiga Format, or it might have been Future Publishing. They could kind of see the writing was on the wall, and they kind of called a conference together because they were worried that, I think to quote them, they said something like, the Amiga was next on the self-imposed hit list. And Commodore UK were on board. All the major developers like Sensible, the Bitmap Brothers and what have you were all on board, telling you know, Commodore, what they wanted the next Amiga to have. I mean, you had the you had the enviable thing where you had developers clamoring to want to stay and do stuff with the Amiga, and they said, like, do this, do this, do this, do this, and do this, and you've got a killer machine, and we will write software for it. And basically, all we got was a 1200, which was a slightly faster processor, quite a few more colors, but outdated hardware, throwing it all around. Commodore didn't have a clue what they had, but their customer base did. But Commodore never really listened to anybody. Um, well, well, Galahad, 20 years almost after the um, your final days in Fairlight, um, you're actually still involved in the Amiga scene now then. So tell us a bit about Putty Squad, for example, and the CD32 project that you're working on these days. Well, Putty Squad was actually, actually started off as, um, I'm going to contact um, Mark Kale. Um it is actually started because obviously everyone knew that Putty Squad had been done and it, it was there was lots of promises made to release it and um I, I'd had enough of all this. So I was I was penning a snotogram to send to him. And basically what I was doing was I was kind of thinking ahead of any excuse that he was gonna come out with and shooting them all down. If it's because it's stuck on Omega, I can get it off. 
If it's because they're stuck on copy protected discs, yeah, I'm pretty sure I can get it off there as well. If it's stuck on a PC, if it needs assembly, if it needs this, any excuse I could think that he could think of, I could, you know, counteract where the only option left to him would either be to come clean and say, all right, we haven't got any more, we lost it years ago, it's gone, or come on then, come, come and sort it out. Because on the forums for about 10 years, people were like, does it exist, doesn't it? You were really doubting it. I never thought we'd see it. Yeah, yeah, well, I am the, I am the bringer of dreams. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so, yeah, it started off as a, as a really nasty snotogram, and then I thought, actually, if it turns out that they have still got it, he's probably not going to appreciate me with this tone. So I then deleted it and restarted it again and acted all nicey-nicey and happy and jolly and uh, quite happy to help you out and all this kind of stuff expecting him to come out with some nonsense excuse. So I could go back on English Amiga board and say, look, I've shot this guy's excuses down as to why he can't release it. And um, yeah, he hasn't got it anymore. He's basically talking out his ass. He's a liar. But obviously the opposite is true. He went, when do you want to come down and do it? And I'm like, oh, so perhaps it does exist then. <laughs> um, and then he put me in contact with um, John Twitty and we spoke over the phone for, a, for, quite, a, for, for quite a bit. And then he explained where it was and it was all originally i was supposed to be going down to the system three offices to go and uh go down there and uh copy it all and may, or maybe sit on their pc and do it and he said oh, oh everything's on the pc up here i went oh well that makes life a lot easier you can just email it to me can't you and yeah i'll do that then so he emailed me uh, a zip file with everything in it and uh Sure enough, the entire game was there, and I explained to him how his disk system would be a problem, and curiously, he never asked how I was so intimately aware of how his <laughs> copy-protected disk system worked and why certain things would need to be removed and done in a certain way. He just just ignored that, frankly. And, um, yeah, I had an email contact with him over a couple of days, and then I said to him, yeah, I can do it. It's not a problem. And obviously... They were like, right, well, crack on. So off I did, off I went, and started doing it, and then sent him a version, and and then versed him in the um, intricacies of Win UAE and where to find a Kickstart. In fact, I think I sent him a Kickstart ROM instead of him downloading it from a dodgy source. Uh, explained to him how to use it and how to boot up the test version I'd done for him, so he could see that uh, he hadn't just handed it over to an idiot. You know, I could actually do what I said I could do. And they were well happy. And then we decided, right, Christmas Eve, it's when it's going to be released. Can you do it for then? I was like, yeah, yeah, it's not a problem. It's easy. So I took a couple of days off just to take the piss a little bit and then carried on another couple of days later, watching the fallout on the internet as people <laughs> were offering their opinions of what a bunch of Git System 3 were. And there's me having a little nodding a chuckle to myself, really itching to say something. And I thought I'd add a few of that, a few bits of comments saying, if this bloody game exists, I'll eat my hat, etc., etc. <laughs> Stoking the fires just a little bit more. Yeah, obviously I uh, I sent it off to System 3 on the 21st of December so they could play test it and they were very happy. And then I realised I hadn't put a crack intro on it. And I went, oh, I've just found a bug. Hang on whilst I do another master version <laughs> for you. And I actually put a Fairlight intro in there. And then just before I was about to send it, I thought, I haven't got the balls to do oh. this because I think <laughs> I think they might kick off if there's a Fairlight intro. It the was classic you all Fairlight along. <laughs> intro with the, the Angel Dawn logo. And I don't think it's so much that, he would, that they would know who I was. I think it was more the fact that it would be Fairlight. And I don't care what part of the software industry you're in. In the last 20 years, every software developer's heard of Fairlight, whether they like it or not. Some people might nod sagely and go, yeah, bastards. And <laughs> other, other people might get proper pissy about it, and I didn't want the release to be jeopardised. So I um, I thought, no, I can't do this. So I um, quickly cobbled together an intro just saying Galahad with lots of stupid pink squares, which um, I am quite manly normally, but for some reason I like the kind of scheme. Hid that in there, sent it back to them. They play tested it. They went, thanks very much. That's bloody awesome. And I obviously, I originally offered to do it for free. I, I refused to take... I, I basically, I was removing reasons why they wouldn't get me to do it because obviously I knew I could do it and I didn't want them handing it to some 
idiot that couldn't do it. And then the next thing you know, all the source code and files have been leaked onto the internet because Billy Nobody couldn't do it. So he's leaked it in the hope that somebody else can do it. And that's when they said, um, well, uh, I would you like a PlayStation 4? I'm like, yeah, okay then. Which is a bit of a pisser because I just bought a load of games for the PS3 for the boy. <laughs> and uh, I didn't want a PS4 just yet because I knew as soon as I got one, I'm going to have to replace all the stuff on the PS3 that he likes for the PS4 version. So, so System yeah. 3 have cost you a fortune. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they have cost me a fortune. I mean, uh, yeah, they, they give away these PS4s <laughs> knowing damn well you've got to buy the pissing games for it. Um but I mean, yeah, and I got a, crack em. yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, and I got a free copy of Putty Squad for the PS4, which um, the less said about that, the better. It's bloody awful. Stick it's to the Amiga horrible, one. Just horrible rendered graphics where everything clashes, and they've remixed the tunes, and the Amiga one sound infinitely better. And no, it's like 900 megabytes of work. Yeah. So um, yeah, and obviously it got released on uh, Christmas Eve. And basically, six o'clock, Christmas Eve, everything went live, bang, all at the same time. And it was, uh, it goes back to that that cracking thrill. It was great to just sit there and see the reactions on all the, on all the, the forums and that. And it is, it's a good feeling. It's a bit like, it's a bit like cracking all over again, where you've done something, where you know people appreciate it and that. You don't have to say anything to anyone. You can just sit in the background and everyone's going, oh, bloody brilliant! I, I, I don't, I don't care how big and tough you are. It, 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 it makes you feel good when people appreciate the stuff that you do. So, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was a good feeling. I think, I, I think I appreciated the the outpouring of. I don't want to say the word love because that sounds a little bit wishy washy. But the outpouring of, yeah, nice one. Appreciation was, was was more was more was was better for me than actually having System Three saying yeah can you do it then and I still get the odd email every now and again saying oh thanks for Putty Squad and I'm thinking yeah it's all right but it's not that good. <laughs> well Galahad, it's been fascinating talking to you tonight. We've actually reached the end of our show this week, but it's been amazing getting an insight into your past with the Amiga cracking scene and also it's great to have you still involved in the Amiga as well. Are you um, are you working on any, anything at the moment that people should look out for? There's a possibility I might be doing something for a classic Amiga game, but I can't say anything at the moment. I'm still waiting to see whether or not my offer's been accepted. I'd like to say something, but I don't want to jinx it in case they say, no, no, we've got it all covered. Thanks very much. Um, I'm hoping they're going to turn around and say yes, because I can do a better job they can. And without being big-headed, I know I can do a better job they can. And it would actually shave off weeks and weeks off their release. So if it happens, great. If it don't, well, you know, you won't be getting as good a version as, as, as could have been. I'm doing some more Atari ST conversions Starquake should be ready in the next three weeks. And then Ranorama after that. And then I might get into looking at Sundog Frozen Legacy because lots of people have been going on about that one. So, yeah, it's picking through the best of the ST stuff before everybody else jumps on the bandwagon and starts doing the same thing. Well, it's been great to hear from you. Thank you, gents. Thank Speak you so much, again. mate.